there is a thing she will think over and over in the days to come, as she imagines how her son died and tries to make sense of something so innately senseless. She will cover Uche's broken little body with a blanket, except his face because he is afraid of the dark, and she will sit beside it numb, and she will pay no attention to the world that is ending outside. The world has already ended within her, and neither ending is for the first time. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is the podcast that, you know, also thinks big books should be read. A controversial but growing opinion among book fans. Um, this time we're doing something totally different. Uh, Bill and I often just, <laughs> for whatever reason, we usually read a book that's 500 pages or over and then talk about it. And it's been sort of a thing we do with each other to, I think, spur conversation and also maybe read books we wouldn't otherwise read. Um but if you're new to the podcast, that's what we usually do. We're doing something a little different this time. We've decided to do N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth Trilogy um, over the course of three months just for our own sanity and also maybe to be a little more regular with our you know podcast conversation. So this time we did the fifth season, which is her first book. And um, as always, I actually want to start somewhere else than the book um, because I think, Bill, you and I live at a, you know, maybe slightly different point on the crossroads of science fiction fandom. And um, I think in some ways our world is like kind of run by geek interests, right? So like this is kind of a classic narrative that people our age and older maybe kind of grew up when superhero stuff and fantasy stuff was not necessarily cool yet like i was one of the only kids i knew who loved lord of the rings in sixth grade you know um or who genuinely still liked batman the way i did it felt like and definitely if not me my older siblings but you know classically and kind of cliche in a cliche filled way we're now in a world run by nerds and yet i still think i don't know science fiction is a really interesting you know i don't know nexus of things to talk about so before we get into the book i just thought i don't know i thought you might talk about your background with science fiction and and kind of why you've loved it or maybe the up and down relationship you've had with it if that's happened <laughs> that makes sense uh yeah i think probably of the two of us i mean i think if we were going to say one of us was the lit guy and one of us the genre guy you'd be the lit guy and i'd be the genre guy that would be no it's just it's it's I know, it's so sad, but it's so it would, true. It would be reductive and inaccurate, <laughs> but I think that would be, if we had to do it, that's the way. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and I haven't, I should say, I have not been as, as hooked into the scene. Well, I was never very hooked into the scene, but I haven't been as up on the new stuff uh, in the last many years as I as I maybe was back in the day. And by back in the day, I mean in middle school when I read everything that had a sword on it on the cover. I read right. every sword book, every book with swords. And of course, I didn't. I actually missed quite a few of them. But yeah, I grew up, uh, my mom and dad were both huge science fiction and fantasy uh geeks my dad uh memorized basically the entire works of robert heinlein uh, <laughs> uh my mom yeah, was that, yeah. um my mom was really into into fantasy my dad was too but my mom in particular was and so i grew up reading a lot of the stuff that was on their shelf including a lot of things that were 
I really shouldn't have been reading yet at the age of 12. Uh, <laughs> I, read, I think I've told you this maybe on this podcast before, but like, because my mom was really strict about what we were allowed to like ingest media wise. But I, my brother had a Tom Clancy novel and I read that when I was like 11. <laughs> and I was like, wow, what's this sexual thing that's happening every other page for 50 pages <laughs> yeah and anyway, that's keep going <laughs> you know, particularly a lot a lot of fantasy is also sort of softcore pornography <laughs> and so that was right, kind of right I'm i sure, learned I'm this sure. <laughs> i learned this week at the library a woman came in who wanted to find this is how she described it she's like okay i don't remember the name at all i have no idea who it's by i don't remember any of the details but it was definitely like a dragon shape-shifting series with a queen who falls in love with someone and i was like okay that's should i could probably find that dragon shape-shifting romance series um there's a lot of them. There's like, yeah, no. there's dozens of dragon shape-shifting series, which I, I thought like, okay, there's probably a few big ones I can sort through. And I, I had to tell her, uh, no luck. You're going to have to Google and come back with a shorter list because it was too, <laughs> dragon shape-shifting romance was too broad of a category for me to narrow down what she was looking for. <laughs> yeah, no, that, keep, that sounds about right. <laughs> but yeah, so I grew up reading a lot of um, Anne McCaffrey, uh, Patricia McKillop, Patricia Reedy, um, I'm not sure what you call like some of the YA, like Brian Jakes, like I, I devoured Redwall, yeah, which is not exactly same. fantasy, but it's at least adjacent to it. Uh, I'm not sure what you call it. It's also younger adult stuff. Um, is it technically YA or is it like more for, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Um, of course, I read Harry Potter and stuff, loved Lord of the Rings. Um, right. I read and a great deal of, because my mom was really into for a while, uh, of Mercedes Lackey, which I'm pretty sure is embarrassing. Uh, I haven't read any <laughs> of her stuff since I was like... 13 so i can't say for sure but i'm pretty sure the fact that i read like 15 mercedes lackey novel is is embarrassing um i read the overwhelming majority of the drizzt stuff by r.a salvatore which i know is embarrassing (laughs) 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 john i think you understand he has two scimitars um and that's that's cooler than other people who only have one scimitar he's got their names are and i quote icing death and twinkle um it's very important that you know this oh my Um, gosh (laughs) since then I've been a little bit less hooked in but I, I've kept up with at least some of the big stuff you know I'd read all the George R. R. Martin stuff I've read I mean, not all of it but I've read the main series stuff I've read the main series you know Patrick Rothfuss Name of the Wind right. stuff um, I have actually read some N.K. Jemison before some of it very recently but I had picked that up before we were going to do this project um, so I'm not anything like an expert in the series particularly in the more recent stuff but I, I did grow up in a, a pretty pretty steady diet of nonsense names big magical mm-hmm. fights and uh you know everyone's just really horny all the time in these books that's very important <laughs> <laughs> well and importantly i mean we were we were we, I mean, not like we weren't a part of it but like we were aware of and talked about the um the great moment that animorphs just had where like the yeah. paris review the paris review blog did a whole piece on it about like you know growing up with the animorphs and there was a great tweet that you sent me and that i think went viral which was like hey that weird thing you remember as a kid is actually an animorphs plot <laughs> yeah um <laughs> or whatever that was and so i and so yeah that was and so yeah that's more of my background is i i think i was always on the outer edge of the the true like fantasy inner circle but i knew about it all and i think i dipped my toe into some stuff but like mostly i was probably more mainstream as far as like i read lord of the rings i think and I, I probably read a lot more science fiction looking back on it i never thought of myself as like a science fiction versus a fantasy person because i liked both um even though i know there's a lot of you know internecine wars over this <laughs> over the, the the lands it feels like but um Looking back on it, I mean, I definitely, I definitely like read all of the Foundation series 
you know, in a way that I probably didn't devour. Um, for example, like I remember picking up, I don't know if it was Ari Salvatore, but that sound, I picked up something like that and I remember not finishing it, you know? Um, but I always liked fantasy and I, and actually I was going to say, I can attest to the fact that you may have read everything, but you always had good taste. Cause at some point in the middle of high school, you gave me a riddle master by, yeah. um, <laughs> McKillop, which is like, st- I, mean, I, I have some problems with the ending, which is the tr- true of like most novels I've read. Apparently like Dune, <laughs> I hate the, I don't like the ending of Dune, nah, but, the ending's um, weak. yeah, that's fair. And and but um I I still think Riddle Master is one of my favorite fantasy novels that I've read you know just period maybe actually it's such a fun big exciting adventure that is really well written um and that's then that, and then of course there's there's the you know there's the stuff I got into in college which was you know like I mean I I did read a lot of Robert Heinlein at one point um I just read this interview between Kingsley Amos um and C.S. Lewis, which is kind of a nice little gem about how they both love science fiction, but no one believes they actually love it. <laughs> they think they're they think they're just like doing a pose um, to like pretend that they're ordinary people. But um, they actually both talk about how much they love um, Canticle for Leibovitz, which is oh you know, no kidding, yeah, yeah, it's one of the best C.S. books of the twentieth century. So well, C.S. Lewis <laughs> he calls it a major work, which I was like, thank you. Thank yeah, no. you, thank you. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> so so the good news is you've always had really good taste. I think you just have also read widely. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, just Canticle for Leibowitz is one of the books that will make me like, like just rave and rant about how it's so good. Like, there's a few books like that that I will just like. All right, do you have anything else to do for thirty minutes? Because what's what we're doing now is I'm making you read this book. <laughs> So it's good to hear that C.S. Lewis. I didn't realize that. That's fantastic. Anyway, yes. I, yeah, no, C.S. Lewis is one of those guys who, I mean, and I, I get why he gets put in a box. He, he put himself in a box in a lot of ways from what he's most popular for. Um, of course, what he's most popular for is not bad. And Chronicles of Narnia, I think, are, are legitimately great. But um, all, obviously all of his, you know, kind of Christian apologetics, I think, put him in a certain weird box. And he's so much weirder than that. Like... I was reading um, one of his philosophical treatises, which is more, you know, it's theological, but it's, you know, it's called Miracles, but he really is trying to deal with it from a natural philosophy point of view. And there's a footnote where he talks about, like, a favorite theory of his, which I'm going to mangle and someone online is going to be mad about, but, like, a favorite theory of his is that, you know, uh, in some ways you can track the truth of the Bible along, of course, literary genres, that's obvious, but even literary history where mythology is not untrue in the sense of like maybe some profound metaphysical things, even if it's historically, you know, not what happened and that you can easily make that argument for most of Genesis, which of course is like, this is the beloved apologist of evangelical Christians kind of making a really interesting, non-literal biblical argument. Do you know what I mean? Um, that's that's probably two in the weeds for anyone who is listening to this, but I just think it's uh, he surprised me with how much yeah he I mean he read so much bad science he actually has a few science fiction books and he talks about loving one of them is like Voyage to the I can't remember what it is it's like by David Lindsay Voyage to something and uh, Kingsley Amos just trashes it he's like that's a bad book you shouldn't like that <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah anyway but I so I will so I, I wanted to use them so that we both read widely I don't um, if you have something else to say, I don't mean to cut you off I just was at a I, I liked that I liked their little interview together. It was also with a guy named Brian Aldous, who's a big science fiction writer from England um, in the mid-century and so forth. But they're they're talking like I think um, the early '60s, mid '60s when the interview happens. And Lewis makes a great point that there is you know 
um, a switch in science fiction that a lot of the earlier works were sort of about, you know, humans versus ogres, right? That there's this sort of like humans dealing with really bad, scary things. And it probably charts onto imperialism really well, that era of science fiction. But that, of course, then it turns at some point to where it's like, you know, you have this um, Sheckley story where people who have been, you know, they're thousands of years in the future. It's written in like 49 and they come back to Earth to find that, like, you know, it's been taken over by these kind of plate creatures, armadillo-ass, sorry, armadillo-ass creatures. And they talk about terraforming the Earth to make it theirs again. And they decide, you know what, we ruined it. We should leave it to the... And I know, it's just this turn where, like, humans become the ogres. And I was going to ask you about that because I feel like I don't think science fiction has ever got past that turn. Um, which seems relevant to me to the Broken Earth trilogy, because I think there's some in-betweenness that's happening with, you know, Father Earth as an antagonist and stuff. So I was just curious if, I don't know, if you think that turn makes sense from what you've read, and also do you think it's relevant to maybe um, science fiction in general, but also maybe this this trilogy? Well, I don't <laughs> I don't know if I've read widely enough to really, particularly in the specifically science fiction genre, I like sci-fi a lot, and I'm reading a lot more about it, but actually... I really haven't read a lot of the canonical texts, and I certainly haven't read the like second level texts very much. I mean, yeah, I've read like so, H.G. Wells, but no, same. I mean, I'm not, I'm not definitely like a yeah. Um, but I mean, that, that that makes sense from what I understand, right? Like, at some point, science fiction gets weird in like the '60s, right? Like before, <laughs> you know, you get a lot of much weirder stuff, which starts to really interrogate how you can't just have a straightforward you know, conflict between humans and aliens or whatever, right? Right. And it it starts to become a lot more sort of critical and self-critical, right? Like I did read uh, some essays on steampunk back in the day, right? And steampunk now, I think we tend to think of as just being fun airships and goggles everywhere. But the punk in steampunk comes from the fact that a lot of the original stories were very critical of Victorian, you know, politics and imperialism and stuff like that. And that's right about, I think, in the 70s and 80s when that gets going. So like there's definitely a strong thread towards, you know, the humans are the bad guys, right? Like, um, which I think, I think we're still doing. I think that's probably right. No, I think we're still, I guess I was asking, I, mean, I know it's a huge question. I, I guess I was partly asking because I, I, I think in some ways, so science fiction, if it's, if it, again, I think we live in a geek world and not that that's bad. Like, I mean, I just saw Captain Marvel with my mom, which has been like, you know, a Twitter debate among some parts of Twitter I don't care about. But like, it was a fun Marvel movie, right? Like, you and I have, you know, texted about this. It was a fun Marvel movie that I'm glad exists. And so I'm glad that like the blockbusters are geek oriented. I wish there was more than that, but I'm glad that they exist. But there's still a way in which I feel like, um, uh, there, there's, there, there are definitely ways in which I think science fiction, even if it's popular, is still not taken as seriously at face value um, as other projects. Like the basic difference in film would be, of course, you know, Black Panther was nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture, and it was a huge deal, right? Because they never happen. These kind of films never get rewarded by the establishment critics or the the establishment power players or whatever, right? That there's something artistically shallow about the project of science fiction. And for me, I feel like that's for two reasons, maybe three, but one reason is actually like science fiction has this real lapse into allegory, which I think can sometimes be a boring way to talk about anything, right? That like, oh, this is happening on a different planet, but would you believe it? It's actually about sexism. <laughs> um, and so, but also I think that there is, I think that um, it, it's actually summarized best. I was reading this book by John Hawks, who's a really, you know, kind of beloved 
I don't know, not mid-century per se, but I guess mid-century, you know, experimental writer. And I think a lot of this stuff came about in the 60s and so forth um, from these people who wanted to break plot, plot specifically. And he has a quote where he's like, I began to write fiction on the assumption that the true enemies of the novel were plot, character, setting, and theme. And having once abandoned these familiar ways of thinking about fiction, totality of vision or structure was really all that remained. And you even, even um, and I don't, actually, I didn't like, he is, he's one of the most beautiful sentence writers, but I didn't like his book, Second Skin, that much. Um, and you have it from For- Ian Forster as well. Ian Forster even says, who's one of my favorite writers, you know, you can't get pat. If I could write a book without plot, I would. And I think actually there's a weird way in which we all know that like science fiction at its best will include wanting you to know what happens next, you know? And that somehow that's like, uh, I don't know that I feel like there's some ways in which like, um, that enables maybe a certain parallel with escapism that so much of science fiction is like, Oh, like you just said, you read all the, you know, all the books that you listed, like, there's an escapist element built into science fiction that I think people don't trust as far as some of these, you know, highfalutin opinions go. But I guess I'm just saying all this because, um, weirdly, I think it's what makes science fiction great. Um, and I just, I thought, I don't know, I thought, I thought if you could talk about maybe the escapism of science fiction, if you find that to be a strength, a weakness, or if, is that part of the problem here? Or, or is that just me in my own life? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, I don't know. I think science fiction and fantasy is is it's a it's a big genre, right? And there's a lot of it which is, I think, very deliberately escapist. Sometimes it's just because it's just intended to be a good riotous time, you know, a good time. Some of it is intended yeah. to be sort of. You, there's a lot of like power fantasy in in parts of fantasy and science fiction, right? Um, and there's sort of a gender divide here, which I'm not qualified enough to talk about, right? But there's there's parts of fantasy which are you know, all the writers are male and there's part of fa- parts of fantasy where all the writers are female and those kinds of books actually don't look very much like each other. Um, right. You know, like the Patricia Reedy or whatever, it doesn't look very much like, you know, Robert E. Howard. And that's not just because there's 60 years between them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, no, it's true. You know, some of like the Conan stuff, like that kind of fantasy, I think is often what people are thinking of when they think about science fiction and fantasy. And I like some of that stuff. And some of it is just, is just garbage intended to make you feel like you're a big, you know, powerful dude who can do whatever he wants. And, and that's not probably great. And similarly, there's some of the other fantasy, which is, is, re- is really just pornography, right? <laughs> As opposed to just like having, you know, strong sexual themes or whatever. But there's a sense in which people will use these books as like a power fantasy escapism in a way that they mostly don't with literary fiction. I don't think people generally picked up, you know, Philip Roth or whatever, wanting to like escape into that world to feel <laughs> yeah. like they were better about themselves. Maybe that's not true, but I think it's at least a different kind of escapism. And I, I am, I will admit that I am kind of skeptical about a lot of those stories, right? There's definitely stuff I've read where I'm like, well, this was just, this was just, I didn't want to face the world for a couple of hours and I wanted to right. feel cool. And I admit that I'm kind of skeptical about that stuff. I don't know what I'm saying. I think one, it's okay for things to be fun. I really do think that's fine. <laughs> but also I think that people tar the parts of science fiction, which are really very serious projects trying to, say things about the world and, and try to make beautiful art with the the same brush as the really garbage stuff, you know what I mean, in the in the genre, which makes about as much sense as tarring your major lit writers with like Nicholas Sparks or something like that, right? It's like seeing some sort of tangential connection between, mm-hmm. you know, those genres. Well, they're both realistic. They both often deal with human relationships. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> but one of them is a different thing than the other. Similarly, you know, the worst Robert E. Howard story has really nothing in common with, you know, really good 
with, with a fifth season, frankly, right? Like that's this just they have, they both are in alternate universes and there's magic, but like they have nothing else in common. <laughs> well, and I guess it's funny to me because I, I think I mean I think for for us in some ways, but also for like you know people who are sort of serious readers and the the, the critics I, I read. This is kind of a banal question, right? Because the answer is always like, if it's a good book, it's a good book. But I, I think, I, I feel like it's important in some ways, because I remember having, okay, I was like, I was trolling a little bit. But one of my buddies from my MFA program, who is like one of the smartest guys I know, about fiction especially, he's really intense. And he's sort of, um, he's so much more than this, but he definitely um, was one of those guys who like, he loved William Gaddis and he liked William Gass, you know, and he, he kind of devoured Don DeLillo. And like, you know, again, he was more than that by far. Like, but, um, but he sort of would represent that to people, you know, like, yeah, he liked formal experimental fiction. And so, but one time I argued with him where I was like, I told him, (laughs) I was like, Madeline Lingle has done more for literature in America than Don DeLillo will ever do <laughs> um, because she's reaching young readers. And actually, like, this is one thing I, I, I'm skeptical to make, like, to really make it a true argument that I would stand behind in all situations. But there's a way in which, so like, if we're talking about escapism and sort of these popular accessible things, if you can hang serious ideas on that peg of popularity, isn't that in some ways more powerful, right? Than sort of an obscure, I don't know, like, I mean, not, and, not, and, and the best writers did this, like Kingsley Amos is a great example of, he kind of had a mental breakdown and he, and he, he wrote a James Bond novel. Literally, he wrote one of the first, you know, um, post-Fleming James Bond novels and then wrote a series of genre novels that are all really good. Um, and he, of course, Don Lillo himself does a lot of genre stuff because I think he also wants to hang a lot of his seriousness on these accessible, fun plots because there's something powerful about that marriage, you know. And, and C.S. Lewis um, and Amos talk about in their interview that, you know, you open up a any any generic science fiction and fantasy magazine, and they list one in here that I don't remember, and it's old. He's like, the range of interests is so much wider than your average literary magazine. You know, like the range of things being discussed is so much more kind of, you know, uh, across various spectrums of, you know, sociology or whatever, right? Like hard science stuff, but also people stuff. And I think that's, so for me, like, I think in some ways the critique of science fiction is so obvious and obviously because of that, correct. Like, yeah, escapism is sometimes, you know, it's all people are trying to do, right? Like you said, they are trying to write stuff where you just feel cool for a couple hours. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I think maybe where, where it gets to me is that the criticism of that is actually, it's wrongly directed as far as like what's bad about that is, is that it's actually a perversion of something so cool and beautiful. Does that make sense? That like the pure escapism is actually just a lessening of the best version, which is maybe more powerful than most straightforward fiction, which is imagination married to ideas. Does that sound plausible? Am I just riffing? No, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) I'm doing. And I'll also say what I've what I've been saying for a while. I really do think that this debate gets gets more and more solved every year. I, I do think that. There are still very tiresome people who say they refuse to read science fiction, but I actually think that those people are becoming fewer and fewer every year. Like I said, a lot of the people I take pretty seriously, not primarily for their science fiction writing or whatever, right. are also super into it. You know, yeah, our, our, you know, the patron saint of the podcast, Francis Bufford, really likes you know Kim Stanley Robinson a lot. Exactly. Talks about that all the time, and you know, maybe the most one of the most respected public intellectuals in America right now 
actually right now is mostly writing Black Panther and Captain America, right? Like Tanahasi Coates right now, his day job is writing Captain America comics. <laughs> so, like, I just I think that th- these people are are not uh, are not well, winning. and I so. and I guess I, and I guess that's kind of why I'm trying to like turn the argument into like a more robust and um, I don't know, kind of holistic defense of science fiction or genre stuff where you can talk about it in ways that aren't just like responding to the fusty old complaints. You know what I mean? Cause like the fusty old complaint is like, these aren't serious works. Whereas I feel like a vision going forward. Cause honestly, of course what you're going to have happen is you're going to have eventually the other problem where we only consider things worth our time if they're fun in a certain honestly like i mean okay i'll get in trouble for this one but like i I like ya fiction fine it does bother me that most of the readers in my life who are like normal people who aren't like you know maybe like you and i are trying to be writers or whatever right like they're just people who have lives and they read and they have no other interest in literature as like a discussion of anything societally right they're just readers (laughs) <laughs> so they're, the same, they're the same people who, uh, when I tell them I want to be a writer, they're like, oh, the next J.K. Rowling. And I say, yes, please. <laughs> I, would love to be a bil- I would love to be a billionaire. <laughs> um, it, I, I do find it, there is an infantilization risk that I think it pisses people off when people like me say that. But it's only because, it's not because I care what anyone reads. It's because if you get lazy about like saying, here's what a good thing looks like. And then you sort of just abstract that to be all good things sort of look like this. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, we all like the same thing, basically. And we've lost the ability to articulate why this is a specifically good thing, which would allow us to like other good things for their own sake. Does that make sense? And so I I think almost like the fusty response has dictated the conversation for so long that I'm not sure we have a robust defense that isn't just like, those guys are wrong. Those guys are wrong about science fiction in like, okay, but why? Like, I don't know, like, a positive argument that doesn't depend on a rebuttal, I guess, if that makes sense. No, that, that does make sense. I, I hear what you're saying. I, uh, I don't know as I have a really good response other than just, I just, if you can't see why some of these books are worth reading and some of them aren't, I really, I have a hard time knowing what to say to you, but I probably should come up with something to say. <laughs> no, well, that's, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I... Yeah, I don't have any. I'm gonna edit this. Out. I don't have anything to say. <laughs> well, I kind of went. I kind of went in a couple directions. Um, but let's 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 uh, let's bring it on back to the book itself in question because I I do think so. You've read Jimison before, like you said. I hadn't. Um, she's been on my list forever, of course. Um, as people who are, if anyone's listening to this, they definitely know. I'm guessing that she broke history, uh, kind of you know made history for a couple of reasons. Although broke history kind of fits the book's themes, yeah, but, that's, um, that's not inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> but she uh, she made history for uh, several reasons. Um, the biggest of which, of course, is she won three Hugos in a in a row, which, like as a black woman author, was groundbreaking. Period. I think to win the Hugo, um, but to win three times in a row has never happened. Um, and so these books are not only kind of well received when they were first published, but they've been already. Like, as they were released, they were sort of, like, immediately enshrined as important, you know? Um, Or as, like, worthy of attention or whatever. Um, So that's kind of, I think that's, you know, so she's sort of taken seriously, I think, if you pick her up. Um, 
but it was my first time encountering her. And, and I, I don't know. I, I, I think we should talk about some basic plot stuff first. Maybe, maybe we should, maybe if you, you're really good at this, if you would, if you're okay, maybe giving an overview of, you know, what's this book kind of, what's the setting and what, you know, what's going on. Yeah, that makes sense. So this is uh, the first book in a trilogy. It's called the Broken Earth Trilogy. Uh, this first book is the fifth season, and it's released 2015. I think it's 2015, 2016, 2017 for the trilogy. So, you know, rat hat bang, one after the other. Um, it is very much the kind of trilogy where it's one story that's being broken into pieces. You know, the, the book ends with a lot of questions, you know what I mean? And I bring yeah. this up because Joel and I haven't read the other two books yet, right? So, yeah, we really haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know where this book is going other than just where it is. So I might highlight the wrong things later, and then we'll just have to deal with that. But uh, the fifth season is set in a... Uh, it's it's another it might be another world i guess that's actually a question but it's on a continent called the stillness which is an ironic name for it because it's a land of a lot of like seismic activity um there's a great deal of geological problems and the earth is in flux um and it's that's, that's the broken earth right that's, that's what the book is about the titular fifth season is because this is a a world with so much sort of tectonic trouble and such that they've they've began to measure history as times where things are more or less okay and then times of this fifth season which is basically a sort of a like a nuclear winter kind of season right where some kind of massive geological event will have you know usually blotted out the sky with a volcanic eruption or something like that or otherwise led to some other sort of environmental catastrophe such that for some amount of months or years the world is in this sort of basically post-apocalyptic state until it has to recover and so the the world has developed sort of defense mechanisms where they're always kind of living waiting for this next big fifth season to start because no one ever knows when it's going to happen um that's that's kind of the the general bedrock of the world the important thing is um there there are a group of people that are called uh origins o-r-o-g-e-n-e-s who are people who are uh you know earthquake wizards would be kind of the reductive way to put it uh earthbenders maybe yeah earthbenders maybe uh but what they are is they're people who are connected to the the sort of the earth such that they can draw power to cause or prevent earthquakes. I think they call them earth shakes most of the time. Uh, or they can also do various other cool things. Like most of the big dramatic moments in the books are when one of the origins does something really cool. Um, but they're also really distrusted by the rest of society because in a, in what is, a, I think, a pretty good example of a traditional fantasy trope where the mages are powerful but unpredictable and dangerous, particularly when they're children, like they have right. a tendency to do the X-Man thing where the first time you realize you're an origin is because someone on the playground has pushed you and you kill him. Um, well, and, and actually I just, I actually liked the mechanics of this cause it's a book that in some ways it does sometimes play fast and loose with some of the rules as far as like, I think, I think she's not always interested in the rules, you know, of like how things are working, but I actually like that, you know, and, and I mean, obviously she also very much is interested. So I don't want to, I shouldn't say that probably, but like, I just the mechanics matter in this point because a lot of the power comes from taking warmth from life or from the earth or whatever, right? And so I I really liked I mean I liked this this idea that like um yeah you kill them on accident but not even because you attacked them but because your power depends on taking life out of something which often includes or warmth out of something which includes people so yeah I think that's that's a good mechanic you know it's a it's a classic kind of mechanic like you said but it's a good one. Yeah, so like if there's if you're standing on like a active earthquake, you can draw power from the shaking earth and such, you know, that sort of kinetic energy and whatever, or from like a lava flow. But if there's none of that around, then you just have to draw from whatever's living around you. And so they talk about creating like circles of ice expanding around them as they 
try to do. It's, it's actually pretty cool. I got to say, the book is. No, I think is this book is. Cool. The book is pretty serious. I think it's doing a lot of cool things. It's also very like just cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's um, fine. I, I brought up Earthbending because I kept thinking because that's one of the best parts about you know Avatar: The Last Airbender is that it's just such a spectacle of of, of fascinating martial arts, and I definitely was reminded of that with like the way she describes stuff. It's so visual, and it definitely is just sort of yeah. It's it's sort of just fun to think about. Oh my gosh, there's this like ice aura that extends and freezes things, and I don't know. It was like you said, yeah. very cool. Um, so, so the book is about three women. Um, there's one named Esun, and there's a woman named Demaya, and a wo- woman named um, oh heck, Cyanite. 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 Yeah. Um, and uh, the book kind of alternates between their chapters. Uh, Essen is the first one we meet, and she is always referred to in the second person. Her chapters are written to you, so when Essen does something, it's you do this, you think about your child, you think about this or that, uh, and we're going to talk more about that later, whereas Demaya and uh, Cyanite's chapters are in more traditional third person. Um, uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, somebody has, for whatever reason, gotten mad and triggers one of these massive seismic events, but on a on a larger scale than we've seen before, so there's there's a there's a huge you know, rift in the earth that goes right through all of the earth's major cities and is going to cause a, you know, a fifth season that uh, the people in the know are pretty sure is going to last for like a thousand years. So this is probably the end of the world. <laughs> right. And the, and the book is very explicit because it sort of starts with um, a lot of stuff you're not supposed to understand, you know, like who are these people and what exactly is happening. And like, it, it definitely has questions in place that it wants you to be asking that it doesn't, it's not going to answer for a while. Um, but it, it's very clear on the fact that, like, this guy who just broke the world broke it in a new and different way. So Because I, I feel like even, you know, as much as, like, you're learning so much information, right, about, like, there are earth shakes and how the society works and, like, there are always kind of catastrophes happening. In my head, at least, I was always very clear on, like, okay, but the, the, the big one is something new, even for yeah. this world full of catastrophes. So I thought, I thought that was good, but also it definitely sets the stakes as high as possible right at the beginning. Yeah, no, this is this is this is bigger than any of the previous ones. Um, and so our, our gal is a Essen is is a origin or the slur is Raga. And so there's a lot of debate about whether or not which word people should use to call these people. She's right. a Raga in hiding in a city with her husband, a small village with her husband and her two kids. Only when the earthquake, you know, blew up a big chunk of the world, their village was spared, which is pretty clear to the villagers there that that only happens when there is one of these origins they're sort of saving the village and rather than being grateful for it they uh actually become convinced that the younger of her two children must have either caused the catastrophe or otherwise been involved in it and so her husband actually beats this child to death and so the book opens with her you know sort of stuck in the room with the corpse of her younger child not sure where her husband has taken or killed the older child eventually she sets off to try to find her her husband and kill him uh and either rescue or you know mourn her other child as well which is just a heck of a way to start a book also just like really this is a very happy and chipper <laughs> book uh everything's great yeah, nothing is dark. all sad uh <laughs> <laughs> no well and i well yeah we'll get to that sorry because actually i you know it I, this book was affecting more than i thought it would be because i think so often science fiction um maybe because it's escapist or maybe because you know um the stakes are often sort of you know epic um, this book is actually, I think it partly received so much praise because it, it's so personal and it's so, it's so invested and entrenched in the specific emotional states, um, kind of of the three stories. So, so her story is her sort of trying to find her husband, uh, and she's traveling and sort of seeing the world falling apart. And, uh, she's 
pretty it's pretty clear that she's a, actually a very powerful origin and she you know so she's not really in any per- immediate danger herself but the rest of the world is is, is falling apart and uh she meets some other people and actually she, she doesn't actually do all that much even though she's i think pretty clearly sort of the central character of the narrative um because a lot of the book is centered around the two other women demaya who we meet as a young girl being discovered by the the guardians who are the people who watch out and basically imprison the origins until they can be trained to not you know kill everyone around them by accident we follow her sort of going through you know earthquake wizard hogwarts that's that's again that's reductive. it's not like that <laughs> at all good. but Perfect. you know so, sort of learning how to how to handle it and having some struggles with the other kids and then we also follow cyanite who is a, a you know working uh origin she's out in the world she's pretty powerful but she's not you know at the top of the class or whatever out in the world trying to fix what she thinks is a relatively minor problem out in the world which is there's a harbor that's overgrown with coral and in fact turns out to be much more complicated than that and um we'll probably talk point out specific plot moments as we go but the big thing is it turns out that all three of these women are actually the same person this is right this is the life story of the same person over her you know her childhood up until she's about i think 42 43 uh trying to find her husband as we realize that all of these various catastrophes that have happened to her life and make her have to reinvent herself sort of in two uh two or three big dramatic times where she's she's killed a lot of people and she's uh gotten very you know had had two separate families now be destroyed basically um and it's uh it's a i think it's a pretty pretty good book i think <laughs> no so i so i really i mean I, I i thought it was a honestly i thought it was a really good book i mean i i have one major complaint which we'll get to at the end and i just mentioned that up front uh, just so everyone knows that i'm still very critical and smart and stuff but um <laughs> But, but I, uh, but truthfully, I really liked this book. I mean, and I thought I would like it. I mean, like, um, I, I thought the people who recommended it both online and in real life are people I trust. Um, but I liked it more than I thought I would because of a few reasons. Um, one of which is that I, I generally hate second person. Actually, I'm not a fan of second person. I think it's a gimmick. Um, and why I liked it here is because, of course, it's paired with, so there's, there's three timelines, right? We've got Essun, who's the oldest timeline in, in the presence. We've got Cyanite, who's just, you know, who's the middle of, you know, this time, I don't know, who's like 20 year old. And then we've got Demaya, who's child. So child, 20 year old, and Essun, who's the oldest. And Essun's in the second person, or Essun, I'm her name. And um, why I think it works initially is because, of course, um, it just makes sense emotionally. Like, it opens with her child dying or being dead and the end of the world and sort of her in this disassociative state, right? And so, like, it's very purposeful from the beginning why it's in second person, which I liked. But I also, honestly, I like that it was paired with two uh, third-person, you know, alternatives because I think second person just gets... It, it, it just gets sort of, you know, uh, played out really quickly. But I think that the book was, it, honestly, it's just so smart in how it's set up. Um, it's like, it's a basic thing that is actually, if you get it right, everything else is so much easier. Because I loved, I, I personally loved the magic trick of you realizing this was the same person before yeah. she tells you, right? And it's actually, it's, it's she's so controlled with how she does it. Um, and I'm, I'm curious when you guess, cause I, 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 at some point I just thought of it almost like, you know, almost like an epiphany, but of course it wasn't, there were all these clues. Um, but what I, what she got right though, is that she made Cyanite, the 20 year old and Demaya, the child, um, she made them both 
present tense. Like all three are present tense, right? Yeah. And so the other thing she does is she opens with the big earthquake and with Essun going after her, you know, uh, husband. And then the other two timelines, Demaya and Cyanite, they're also traveling. They're also like outside of the the major city, right? Like so, like and so, like so, you realize that they're in, that they're probably a different, like they're at a different point in relation to the big shake. But for me, at least, I was like waiting for the big shake stuff to affect them. Like, that's what I thought we were waiting for, right? Here are three timelines or here are three people. And like, we have we have the person, Esson, who's already experienced the earth shake. And now we're waiting for this girl and this sort of, you know, young woman to kind of also start to have fallout. And that that's initially what the setup is. But it's so smart because she's got the tenses right. She's got the perspectives right. But she even has them in the right locations, right? Like they're all traveling. All three of them are traveling. And so, I don't know, like she just perfectly disguises it, for me at least. And then, and she gets a little heavy-handed with it later, but like for the first 150 pages, or maybe less than that, she really softly doles out the obvious answer that this is the same person. It's just the same person across the three, you know, the three big points of her life, Um and so I don't know. So I was curious about when you were sure that it was the same person and sort of what tipped you off or how, I don't know how much you enjoyed that even. if I, I, I loved it. I thought it was like a, a trick you see all the time in fiction in some ways, but it was good. She did it really well, I thought. No, I uh, I liked it a lot. I, I realized that Demaya and Cyanite were the same person relatively early. Um, yeah, but it same. actually took me a little bit longer to realize that Essen was the same person. You know what I mean? I had because yeah. there's also there's a question we we see the, the man who breaks the world, right? We get about he's actually the first one of these characters. We that's not true. We see Essen briefly first, but he's the first character we spend any more than like a paragraph with. Um, and so one of the questions is who is this guy, right? right. And uh, pretty early on, there's one obvious candidate, which turns out to be correct. Um, right. Cyanite is traveling with a guy named Alabaster, who is uh, they they mark they demarcate like how powerful an earthquake wizard you are. I'm gonna quit doing that because I, I really I like it a lot. It's just <laughs> there's <laughs> it's a lot of proper nouns here, funny. and so I don't want to. <laughs> I know it's true. But when I say earthquake wizard, I'm not making fun of the book. They're really cool. Yes, I just... <laughs> it's just so people can follow the conversation. <laughs> um, but the most they, they demarcate how powerful an origin you are by how many rings you get, right? So like a, a one ringer is somebody who's like trusted not to you know, blow themselves up, but not much yeah, else. Kill their classmates. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas a 10 ringer is, you know, like a, you can basically think of like levels in a video game, right? Like, again, that's, totally. but, you know, so, but there's, he's the only 10 ringer currently around. Like, it's not like he's the only one who's ever existed, but at the moment, the only person, the fulcrum is what they call it, is the sort of, again, earthquake wizard college, uh, is, is the fulcrum, uh, which makes me think a lot about give me a lever big enough to move the world, which I think is probably on purpose. Uh, yes. But anyway. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, he's the only ten ringer, and he is on this mission with Cyanite, who is a four ringer. And there's two things going on. In the first place, he's there just kind of to give him something to do, uh, you know, to go out and help fix this harbor, which has gotten overgrown with coral. And also, um, you start to realize pretty early on that the Origins don't have any freedom, right? This isn't just like an X-Man thing where you have to stay mm-hmm. at tr- you know, Professor Xavier's house until you can be trusted not to blow yourself up. This is actually you never get any freedom. This is very much a dragon age mages and templar relationship and right. uh I, I did read her online saying that that was one of the inspirations for this which uh as a side note is cool that now like video games can influence literature another way around because of course dragon age is heavily inspired by game of thrones and then it's anyway well and well in dragon age it's, it's also nice because that's like it's i'm glad she picked the most interesting part of dragon age basically you yeah know, that's as far as its world that to me was always the most fascinating relationship 
And she does a lot more interesting stuff with that relationship here than I think Dragon oh, Age ever actually does totally. with its mages and Templar. Um, like the relationship between Shafa, who is the guardian who finds uh, Demaya. Again, it's all the same woman, but to, for ease of reference, uh, finds her and sort of rescues her from her family and also is really this kind of abusive father figure to her and that she both loves him and that he like one of the first things he does is just break her hand to teach yep. her that she he can hurt her whenever he wants and it's this really weird uh relationship that she's never quite sure how she feels about the entire time we see them um it, it's a much cooler i think exploration of that dynamic than the mages templars relationship ever gets in dragon age partly because that breaks out into warfare so fast in the franchise um well but like and yeah so i think we're also we're, we're trying to figure out it's so like when you were sure about things and like part of the Part of the problem is that you have other questions like who is Alabaster and what's happening with all these different journeys. Yeah, and so so Alabaster and Cyanide are on this journey, and you realize that one of the reasons they're on this journey is not just to solve the problem, but also to breed, right? To create another yep. origin child, because there's this whole Bene Gesserit, like, you know, uh, breeding program going on. Yes. And that is really uncomfortable. It makes the relationship between these two characters really bad, because neither of them... They both acknowledge they don't really have a choice. He technically has a choice, but he doesn't really. Uh, and she really doesn't. And so it's this really odd dynamic that they have to go through <clears throat> because they kind of hate each other, but they're required to, to to breed like livestock. And also, uh, so anyway, it's this really weird dynamic. And he's very powerful. And so you wonder, well, is he the one who broke the world? And he is. But at the same time, you're wondering, is it maybe their child, right? So there's some temporal right. floating around here that made me not sure that Essen was in the same was the same woman as Demaya and Cyanite were, but like, and I think that's, I think that's the one she wants you to, you to be more surprised by because it's not too yes. long before Cyanite is remembering things about like her hand hurting. And you're like, Oh, that's right. when Shafa broke Demaya's hand. Or like, she remembers a quilt. Um, there's a word that uh, Demaya has a quilt that her grandmother gave her, which she describes as fusty. And I don't think she ever uses that word again, except when Cyanite remembers a fusty smell when she's thinking about home. So like, there's a yep. couple of callbacks to make that clearer, but I didn't realize Essen for sure was Cyanite. I was curious until like she walks up to uh, one of the other characters and recognizes her as somebody from Demaya's past, like uh, th and which right. happens at the beginning of a chapter. She's like, Hey, hold up. You're not who you said you were. You're this other person I met 30 years ago. Um, and that was when I was like, oh, okay, this is just all one person. <laughs> when, is that when you figured it out or? Well, so, so actually, yeah. So I, I think we probably figured out Demaya and Sinai at the same time. And I, I actually, I did guess that they were all the same person is what I ended up thinking. Oh, but, but purely from a writerly standpoint, cause I think you're right. Yeah. Like I think, I think that the Demaya Sinite stuff is really well drawn together. And for me, like I was positive. Um, there's an incident when Sinite and Alabaster are on the road where there's a big earthquake, which actually I think, again, I think she's, it's like a red herring. Like, I think, you know, at this point in the book, you're still waiting for the big shake to affect all three timelines. And so a big shake starts to happen and you're like, okay, here we go. But actually Alabaster quells it and he takes Cyanite to what they call like a node station where they basically imprison and torture origin children to effectively make them anti-earthquake you know, sensors and uh, reducers, right? So they're, you know, it's a horrible situation. And um, there was something about the way that, like, at that point, like, there's various things that have been talked about, which a, a few of them you've mentioned. But um, Cyanite says, you know, she's shocked because she's like, oh, this is, like, becoming a node station operator, whatever it's called, um, a node maintainer. This is what happens to, ch to origin children who are very powerful but have no control. And she's shocked and horrified, and she's like, I know people who were taken away. 
And I think the next Demaya chapter, which is the, the next thing, is basically about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and and, and so, I was I was certain within the Node chapter that that they were the same person. And then I extrapolated that I was like, I bet Essen's the same person. I mean, a, a little later, but I was like, I bet she is because, um, because it would make sense from a writing perspective. But there is a moment I wish I knew where it was, where she um. It's just a question of her of her names and like her past selves. There's like a line in there in the middle of the book when I was like, okay, the past selves are Demaya and Cyanite. But um, all that to say though is, I mean, I I, I I thought it was, I don't know, I thought it was just, it's again, it's like the kind of magic trick that when you talk about it, it seems obvious that like, hey, here are three timelines of one woman who has all these characteristics in common, but surprise, it's the same woman. But actually like it, it wasn't a surprise so much as like a, a beautiful reveal because it made... The Maya and Cyanite stuff especially feel more important as it was happening because you knew they were related, um, but also it made it more poignant. So like you see the node maintain, you see the, a, a child who's become a node maintainer, and then you have this whole for me heartbreaking tale of bullying within the fulcrum, the you know Earthshake Wizard School <laughs> that Demaya's in, and it's heartbreaking for a lot of reasons. One of which is that like no one wins, right? And you know that partly from Cyanite's chapters that they actually had it even worse than you thought they had it, these these poor kids. Um, but so and I, I will, I want to pause with that for a second because I, I, so I, you mentioned something that I thought was interesting because you, you kind of, you and I have both done it. It's, it's hard with sci-fi. There's so many obvious, you know, um, analog situations, right? Like whether it's Dune or, you know, Dragon Age or whatever, there's so much stuff in this book and even some Asimov stuff, like some of the way the world is built reminded me of definitely Earthsea even, right? Like there's just stuff that you can, you know, when you've been around, when, the, when a genre has been around this long, it's overlap, right? You can't be helped. But I think why this book captured people maybe um, is because I, I, I think I think it is really well written for the stuff we've talked about, the three timelines and whatever. But she is just so committed to the personal emotional stakes of every situation um, and she won't let she won't let the situation off the hook, right? So like this bullying chapter where Demaya is being bullied and then she turns the table, um, not in a gimmick, not in a gimmicky way at all. Um, there's like surprise after surprise of like, oh, the people you thought were bad are not as bad as you thought, but not in the usual way. In a way where like you suddenly realize they're all twelve year olds, you know, or they're all like eight year olds. And she kind of she kind of never lets you off the hook with the fact that like this big world building is always pinpointed in the like emotional damage of a couple characters, but always this Demaya Cyanite Essen person, right? That the the big world and all of its problems only matter in as much as they have destroyed this person's life in so many different ways. And I I mean that's again a lot of what science fiction tries to do. But she, the way she writes is so personal, you know, and I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I thought that was, it sounds obvious. Like I'm not breaking it apart very technically, but it was really affecting to me at times that I was surprised by. I, I think that's definitely one of her real strengths in this book. And also to, to vamp a little bit on her, the, her previous trilogy that I've read is the Inheritance Trilogy, which was her first uh, set of novels she published, 2010, 2011, 2012. Then she wrote a duology that I have not read in between these two. And, um, I don't think the Inheritance Trilogy is nearly as good as this book is, which, I mean, it's you wrote it earlier, like, fair enough. Um, yeah. And I, I have a number of sort of... Part of it's just because there's a taste thing. The Inheritance Trilogy is a lot about 
like cosmology with how the gods do things and a lot about weird sex and those are my two least interesting things for me in fantasy novels <laughs> yeah, just personally same. right like i don't same, tend no, to care yeah. about the gods and i don't tend to care about the weird sex and that's uh so that's probably just part of why i didn't like it and also it doesn't matter but the point is one thing she did very well in that was also ground all of her world building in the very personal stakes of her characters like one of her you know first person characters ends up being like a god and so it's a huge deal but everything is still filtered through what he is going through right now in the book right like we don't get a lot of extraneous details about parts of the world that are don't matter to our character because our character's not thinking about them right now right and i think that's also what she's done very well in the fifth season where she seeds her world building throughout the book such that by the end of it i have a decent understanding of how the world works but it's only because it impacted our hero right like it, it only matters where it touched her like i actually don't have any idea how like the high level bureaucracy of the government of the empire works because it doesn't matter because it didn't really impact her life very much and then it was destroyed and so like i don't need to have an understanding of that that's not what this book is about this book is about her living in this world and so i you know and like i said that's one of the things she did really well in the inheritance trilogy too where which was partly you know could have been all about sort of a game of thrones style dynastic conflict because that's kind of what it's about but it's not about house stark and house lannister or whatever it's about yena dar and then the later protagonists and what she's dealing with right <laughs> it's not a nationalistic conflict it's a conflict of this this one woman trying not to die in this weird place she's found herself well and so there's i mean so there's i remember there's this great joke at a mfa program one of the graduations you know the a graduate was like speaking about um, three years of like forms classes, like the form of narrative. And he's like, man, I guess I wish you guys would just tell me what form is. I, I, don't, I don't know what, what is form. I still don't know what form is like structure. What the hell is it? <laughs> and I, it's a, it's a, it was a great joke because like, I feel like that's my MFA was all about like, like in some ways what elevates any given narrative. Cause in some ways every story has been done is always form. It's always the how is sort of what makes something go from interesting to like maybe fascinating or great, right? It's where the artistic part comes in. You and I had actually a great quote from Rebecca West about this, right? That form is the essence of art, essentially. Um, anyway, my point being is that, so I think in, in what she's done, of course, is she has um, submitted the form to the character development, right? So, and including like, she's this actually, she's actually in the hierarchy of what she cares about. She has put the world building sort of underneath the character building, which you said perfectly, because she's using the three timelines to fill the world out, right? But it's still, you know, they're still kind of, you know, not subjugated, but like the, the world building inf information is still completely anchored to the character building. And so she's chosen like a really smart way to build the world, which is three different timelines so that you can kind of learn about the fulcrum and you can learn about what an origin does and about different cities. And you can learn about, you know, kind of the devastation of the fifth season all at once, but it's still under the, you know, I don't know. It's still underneath. It's still tied to. I just think it's um, it's what makes the whole novel really, really work. Um, in addition to yeah, I actually think. I mean, it's not the kind of writing you would you would pick apart sentence by sentence and say what beautiful words. But she's got a you know she uses present tense really well. That everything feels very immediate and very intense. Um, and she all she does a really good job. Um, kind of going one shift beyond what you thought she would do. So like when Shafa, the guardian, breaks Demaya's hand, she sort of plays that out longer than I thought she would, you know? Um, because there's a really e e obvious, like, 
paradox of here's someone who loves me hurting me um but she sort of she sort of pushes past like okay i i must hate him but he's the only person i love but i hate him like she sort of pushes past that variation or that uh fluctuation enough times that it actually does feel really complicated does that make sense like demaya's own perspective is sort of allowed to be challenged enough times that it actually does feel complicated and it does feel like okay um you you really are supposed to believe Shafa, I think. I mean, I think she wants you to believe that this guy, almost like the villain in um, Serenity, he knows he's bad, but he he really does believe in the good. You know what I mean? But she but it all but all it all depends on the fluctuation of Demaya's perspective, which I think she does a really good job. You know, kind of pushing beyond the first two obvious steps. Which another one of the things I like about this book, and and again about her, the other trilogy actually is. All of the people, you know, really, even though some people are definitely more the villains than others, people mostly aren't allowed to just be the good guys or the bad guys. Like, she has some sympathy for most of the characters. Like, even Shafa, like you say, is allowed to be more complicated than just, like, an abusive father. Like, it's not clear, is he actually, you know, on the one hand, he's breaking this little girl's hand, and that's horrible. On the other hand, if she doesn't learn how to control herself in pain, she's going to kill a lot of people and get put down. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's, there's, totally. there is kind of a, I'm not sure this is the right way to do this, but maybe it's not just, you know, sadism. Like, maybe there really is, maybe he really does care about her and thinks this is the right way to do it. And, you know, maybe he's even right. Like, probably not, right? But it's at least allowed to be a question for a minute exactly. or two in a way that it wouldn't be, I think, in a lesser book. Yeah, no, it's taken seriously. I think that's exactly what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's taken seriously. And she, she any, any conflict, she tries to take everything as seriously as possible so that the conflict is really dynamic, but also really personal because, you know, it's much harder to have your hand broken by your savior, right? Cause this guy saves her. He totally saves her and he breaks her hand and he, and until the end, maybe he's not really allowed to be anything um, to, I, you know, to one side or the other, um, which she does consistently really well. Um, I, so I do want it to, okay. So, I wanted to talk about, so which, which storyline did you kind of find yourself in? Was there a storyline you wished you got more of or that you found yourself identifying with most or was it all, or was the weave really the magic? So so the weave is very important. I think the cyanite story is really the most of the plot of the novel, probably. Like if I had to pick out the important scenes, it's mostly there. A lot of the essence stuff really is just, she walks from point A to point B and meets some people, which I I think works really well. I'm not being critical, right? But there's not that much that actually happens in that story, right? Other than the yeah. the, initial, the initial scenes. Um, when, you know, she gets attacked by some people who are scared of her and then in defending herself blows up most of the town, right? Like that's, which is the other thing is like, th- these things are very dangerous. That's very clear. Like this isn't, like the mages in Dragon Age, it's like they're dangerous because sometimes they can turn into demons, but it's like, what if, if they just don't turn into demons, it's fine. And like 95% of the time when they turn into demons in Dragon Age, it's because the Templar are like trying to kill them. <laughs> But like this, you know, there's like lore stuff, which is like, oh, they turned into an abomination and it was bad and we needed the Templar. Yeah, well, here, like, it's actually like, no, they actually are dangerous. Like, this isn't just like strictly because of we we decided that there was like this woman is just trying to defend herself against one guy with one one person with a crossbow and kills like a whole bunch of people in the the process. And again, the complication. So she she kills the leader of the calm, the town, who's actually a good guy. 
who saves yeah, the her, guy right? who wanted he's to help her. Yeah. He's trying to get her out on her own. He's trying to like be kind as much as possible. And he's one of the few people she kills. I mean, she kills a bunch of people in the long run, but I think in the moment she ices not the whole town, right? She just ices no, everyone yeah. in her vicinity, which includes, oh, whoops, the only guy, not the only guy, but the, the person who was sort of giving her a chance, <laughs> which, you know, that's, that's good. That's, I think that's good writing. Yeah. But like, other than that, like a lot of the stuff doesn't actually happen so much except as in cyanide stories. I think that's the one I was most invested in. Um, although, you know, you also, you have to have Essence like not being that upset about it when it happens. Like you have to have right. the understanding like later on, she's going to turn into that. Like what the heck happened? Sort of, sort of Damocles-ing over cyanide's whole story. Cause it really feels like maybe it's going to be okay until it's really not. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. And, so, you know, the weave is definitely what makes it work. But if I had to pick one plot line for some reason, that's the one I think that is is the most interesting. No, I, I think, well, and that's why I think, again, the structure of the novel is is so important. And again, if you get that right, you can do so much else that you usually couldn't. Because really, if you broke the book apart, I mean, um, like you just said, Esson is the... Um, She's what gives stake a lot of a, a lot of tension, I should say. She's what gives a lot of tension to, to Cyanite's uh, plot. And Demaya is just um, background, right? She's almost like, you know, not flashback, but right? She's, you know, she's character building. <laughs> um, yeah. And yet it doesn't, for me at least, like I was invested in the conflicts Demaya was having for their own sake, you know, because especially initially you think she's a different person, you know, and I think that's part of the magic trick is that even when you're convinced they're the same person, you've already kind of got into it, giving it a full weight of its own, right? Like the weight of Demaya sort of exists on its own for however shortly um, before you know they're the same person. And I think that weight has a lot of momentum so that you sort of keep taking it. And she she does a good job. Like the stuff happens in Demaya's plot line that becomes obvious as far as like, it'll matter later, you know? But, um, but I think even without that, you're invested because of how it was, how it was introduced to you you know, um, which is just so smart, but so, yeah, so, so I think I, I do, I mean, there's something else you want to talk about as far as like, um, I don't know, anything like plot or anything you, you loved in particular or. So, so one of the questions I had is there's kind of a narrator in the book. Um, yeah, we should she, talk about she, this. She does this thing where, um, and she, again, she does this in the inheritance trilogy as well, where she talks directly to the reader sometimes, particularly at the beginning and end of the book. Um, like, the first line of the book is... Give me just a second. It's very conversational. It's, yeah, let's start with the end of the world. Why don't we get it over with and move on to more interesting things, right? Which is, again, something she does in the Inheritance Trilogy, too, where she really is just like, look, I got to do this things. So let's do it. And let's, you know, she's very conversational, not throughout the whole book, but at, at these sort of key moments where she's got to kind of flash forward a couple of years or something like that. Right. And then towards the end of the book, um, the narrator kind of identifies himself. He does. Um, as as a character that Essen runs into, who at first he's kind of a feral boy, uh, which made me think of this. We did we read the stand on this podcast a while ago, and there's a feral magic feral <laughs> yeah. boy plot in there. Uh, which, Classic uh, trope. Uh, so she finds this kind of weird kid who's wandering around covered in mud, and is pretty quickly she realizes is not like there's something very strange about him. But because she's right. of course, you know, she's all she's also a sort of a persecuted like magic person she's like well i don't know it can't be any worse than what i am right uh and so she she keeps hanging out with him and it later turns on that he's a uh he's a stone eater which is a apparently a separate race of creatures that are S- sentient, sentient yeah sentient sort rock of human, beings. but not really 
Yeah, and they're they're we, we don't know much about them by the end of this. They're clearly going to be very important going forward. Yeah. Um, but towards the end of the like almost the last chapter, we realize that he's actually the narrator. He says, "This is me. This is you know I, I first started paying attention to to you, well to her because he's kind of because it's in between the two timelines, so he's kind of dithering on the pronouns, which is you know because it's switching between the third person timeline to the second person timeline, right? Right. Um, he says you know, this is when I started paying attention to you. And so, so what, what do you think about that? I actually wasn't completely sold on that because I'm not sure how much of the narration, how on earth that makes sense if he's actually talking to someone or not here. What, what did you think? Well, you know, it's funny. So I think I have to complicate that because there's even a, there's a third layer. It seems like, um, so we have the kind of convert because honestly, so at the very beginning, the, some of the conversational stuff that you mentioned that actually, that does feel authorial to me. It feels voice-driven, and so it was hard to tell if it was voice-driven or narrator-driven. And that sometimes is when I got annoyed. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm okay with weird, voicey, you know, stuff, um, which you read my fiction. You know that. But um, <laughs> but so, but so I couldn't figure out if it, if it was like authorial insertion for voice or if it was truly a strict narrator. I didn't totally love – I couldn't tell basically, but the, the, what, what convinced me that there was something else weird going on is, um, she has those, those couple of interludes where like, um, the text is different and it's just like, you should questions you should be asking, right? Like, why does no one yeah. talk about the stars? Why is no one talking about other continents? And those don't like, so if by, if by the end we know that the, um, the second person, the director dress is happening, because of Hoa, like let's say like director S slash second person happens because Hoa is telling her her life story for whatever reason. We don't know yet, probably. Then these interludes feel like a remove beyond that. You know, they feel like they don't feel like Hoa. They feel like something else, um, which I wasn't against per se. I just didn't I, unless and honestly, unless they're used purposely later on i didn't know that they were necessary you know like hey are you wondering why there are no stars are you wondering why there are no continents and it was like uh no actually (laughs) because i already figured that this was a weird earth broken by various things and that you would get to that at some point um but yeah the hoa stuff i i think my only hesitation this is actually we're kind of getting into joel's hesitation ground in general because i thought the magic of this book was the weave and um, you already mentioned the chapter that actually I didn't, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying you liked it, I didn't like it, but you mentioned the chapter where basically Essen says, hey, the person I know is Tonki, you're actually this person I know from my past, which is a Demaya person, right? Um, a person yeah. from Demaya's timeline. I didn't like that chapter. Um, and I thought it was, I, I thought it was a, a lot of things being tied together really bluntly that earlier had been tied together really loosely. And um, I guess like, I guess my basic question was like, um, okay, so anyway, so, that, so that I didn't like the chapter, but I guess what I worry about with the Hoa narrative is that there's going to be a very concrete basic reason for this, this kind of move that is actually not as cool as the move itself. Because I kind of like the narration. I sort of like that he even said... I, I didn't love him introducing himself. That that was awkward. But I love the way that the narration has allowed her to write the story. But I'm just worried it's because, like... 
it could be really poignant where like in the third book, you know, she's a, you know, she's turned into stone. She's now a stone eater herself and he's reminding her of her humanity, right? Like you could do, I could see it being a very, but I think it is going to be something very concrete, you know? I think that a lot of this stylistic stuff is going to resolve, not just for worse, I think oftentimes for better, but it is going to resolve into very concrete plot, you know, uh, plot conclusions. Does that make sense? Yeah, that um, does make sense. And, but and so that in the chapter in question where like, Essen suddenly realizes that, um, oh, Tonki is actually this random-ass person I met so many years ago, and then this random-ass person has to explain within, like, a paragraph how uh, I've been tracking you for, like, 30 years. Surprise! And then, of course, I think at the end of the chapter, we also learn that, hey, um, a person from her village is also in this city they found, which is random, and uh, Alabaster's here. <laughs> <laughs> everything happens like at once. I mean, I, I can't remember if Alabaster's in that part, but it's just like, it's just, it's this sudden, like she, she has, it's like she's tying this knot, right? And she has three different half hitches or half loops and she's slowly bringing it together. And it felt like to me, all of a sudden she's like, she just snaps it tight, you know? Um, I think that's my only trepidation with the book is that I enjoyed the things coming together so much that I think my only worry going forward is that we're going to lose what sort of made this book really unique, which I think was the the weave of voices. Yeah, I, I think that's that is a concern I have as well because definitely, I mean, going forward, it looks like it's going to just be Essen's story because science right. pretty well. We've seen the start in the end. Yeah, and, we've seen it. Yeah, you know, so I don't, you know, I don't know how it's going to go because you're right. If it's just Essen, I'm still going to be interested in the book because I'm. Oh, I know, still, I'm I'll probably still, happens. I'll probably still but like it. I just don't know that it's I'll definitely love it. like I love this formally one. interesting. What I will say is the Inheritance Trilogy did some weird voice stuff where the first book is from one character's perspective, the second book is from an entirely different character's perspective, and the third book is from the perspective of a character we've known the whole time. But you know what I mean? It's like yep. she's willing to really do weird stuff with her point of view characters is what I'm saying. So she might have some other exciting no, and that's sleeve going actually, forward. So, and that's, that's my instinct is that because she's played out Essen so much – I think Essen will be a character, but I think she likes the polyphony too much not to have someone else or something else. Ha- I totally agree. I think someone else is going to be coming in. And right, technically right, technically a lot of this voiciness is apparently Hoa, which is still yeah. – I, I, didn't, I didn't love that reveal, I guess. And that's what – I feel like the book, um, knowing that there's two more books to come – it just felt like there was, like, because nothing's resolved, per se. I mean, cyanide stuff is resolved. Like, the biggest questions of, like, what's going to happen in this post-apocalyptic world that's actually just gone extra post-apocalyptic. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like, I think there's, like, a lot left, you know, to happen. There's a lot set up. And yet, for all that's been set up, there's a weird way in which it just felt like she pulled, I don't know, it just felt like she closed the loop on a few things. Um a little too hastily for me because I think this sort of gimmick of the same person from three timelines, it's only gimmicky if it feels gimmicky, right? Like contrivance is the whole game in fiction. So it only matters if you show your hand and the person feels like you're manipulating them, right? Otherwise the whole game is to manipulate them. And for me, it felt like she was doing that so deftly and then all of a sudden she's like, okay, you get it. Now I'm going to use a hammer and slap you with what's happening. You know, no, I'm I'm with you. I think that chapter was a little clumsy because you're right. It was she just literally just like walks up to her. We I don't think we've had any indication exactly. that she's recognized her. At least I didn't notice any. No, nope, she walks I didn't up like, either. hold up, you're actually so and so. Yeah, I'm like okay. <laughs> and so and the, so the good news is actually it like 
technically speaking, it's a very small complaint, right? Like she could have fixed that in editing with like a couple of line changes almost, you know, like she could have inserted stuff in essence chapters to have made that less, uh, sorry, a more organic reveal. So in some ways my complaint's very small, but it, it feels big to me for the reason of like, I enjoyed everything else so much, you know, like I thought she just demonstrated such control and such restraint. Cause I think there's a way in which when you're doing a game like this, it, it would have been so easy for her to ham it up. You know what I mean? To be like, Oh, did you notice that these person both don't have left fingers? You know, it's like, <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Now I get it. You know, but she really, like you said, she, like she used the word fusty twice, you know, or she talked like, you know, cyanide without mentioning. Cause like, like when Cyanite says, oh, I had people that were taken away when I was a kid. The really hammy way is to be like, oh my gosh, I had people. I can't believe they did that to crack, you know, like, and then we read about crack. Like she totally avoided those, those, you know, I think really ham fisted ways of calling forth resonance. Um, so in a weird way, it's like, it's, I think it's my backhand, my backhanded way of saying like, it annoyed me so much because everything else was so, I think, precise that it just felt like, whoa, whoa, why did you, why did you let go? Almost like, almost like an erogeny. She lost her control a little bit, I thought. It, but also the second reason is that if I have any fear about going forward, it's that what made this book so great can't be replicated. You know, you can't, you can't do this trick again, right? She spent it. And uh, I loved it. But I also don't like, I'm reading to know what happens next, but not, not as, not as much as I would with a different science fiction fantasy book, to be honest. No, that makes sense. I got to say, so, I, again, I, I, uh, the last chapter ends kind of oddly. Uh, what, did, what did you think? <laughs> I had a question, like, because there's like a, I actually really kind of hated I this. Did and I, I did I, too. I, so she runs in and she sees Alabaster, who is like turning to stone and missing parts of his limbs and is just in terrible shape. And she hasn't seen him in 12 years since... Um, so she and him at the end of their mission end up being like living on this sort of island paradise with these pirates in this sort of, uh, you know, pretty happy family where they're kind of raising a child together with this third and sort of a polyamorous relationship. And they're all very happy. And then the guardians, which are, again, sort of the Templar, show up and she basically blows up all of it because it's it's all doomed. And so she kills their child and he gets kidnapped by the stone eaters. And then she, you know, so it's this horrible tragedy. And she hasn't seen him since then. Right. She hasn't seen him since this you know catastrophe out on the islands. And he's in terrible shape, and she realizes, oh, man, you're the one who blew up the world. Like, this was you. And he's just like, yep. And he's like, I need you to do some stuff, because, uh, you know, you're the only other one who can do some of this really powerful earthquake magic involving some old artifacts left on from the previous civil... There's also... It's a Welcome back to that. Um, you know, you're the only one who can do this powerful earthquake magic that I can do. And she's like, what do you want? You want to fix it? And he says, I don't want you to fix it. I want you to you know, to make it worse, tell me, have you heard of something called a moon? <laughs> and that's the end of the book. And I really didn't like that at all. I was like, okay, I get it. They don't know there's a moon. We've talked, we've, you've given, it's not like it came out of nowhere. But like, also, I'm not sure what the heck that means. Like, I guess I don't understand, maybe I just don't understand the magic system enough, but I'm like, I don't understand why a moon is a big reveal. Like, are you going to pull a moon out of the earth? Are you going to create a new moon? What is that going to do? Are you going to crash a moon into the planet and kill everyone? Like, are they I don't on understand. some sort of like ancient moon that's going to become earth's actual moon, right? Like this is actually millions of years ago and this is the world that broke apart to become the moon or something. I don't know. Um, I don't think, I don't, I don't think that's it. That'd be the most interesting answer, I think. But I, so here's why I didn't like it. And so this is actually, so this is why, I mean, I, I'm not great 
at I think sometimes pulling apart the technical stuff that I that I feel like um, every reader notices, but it's really hard to be explicit about because you know talking about for example her control of resonance, a lot of that is about restraint, right? Like it's it's her not mentioning names, it's just mentioning sort of vague whatever crossovers. And this moment, I think I so I think there's a, a lot of problems, but the biggest problem I think it actually is a technical problem because. Um, the issue you have with characters speaking to each other, right, is that you want to be true to what they would actually say to each other, right? So as the author, you know, you're you're imagining, okay, if let's say they don't know what a moon is, and it's going to be this vital piece of information, and they don't live like the Earth doesn't have a moon currently because we lost it or something, whatever, right? Like, like this this might actually be how Alabaster would say this in this imagined world, but of course these people don't exist. They're written for the benefit of a reader. <laughs> and I think like you have to modulate things so that you're, you're never speaking past the reader in a weird way, right? Where when the, when the characters start to know more than the reader, there's a tipping point, right? There's a tipping point where you lose the reader because they can't know so much that it's opaque. Um, but they also can't be, I think like the reader can't be too far ahead of the character either. And so I think I think this for me this is like a she like misjudged, you know how to set up this whole moon whatever because basically to me it's just a very clearly like hey here's a big mystery what the hell hope you read the next book you know like that's really what she's doing and so it's it, one it feels sort of pandering but two it's like okay I've spent this whole book learning things here's the end of the book you know I'm the person who's you're actually writing for. But now you're like letting these characters leave me behind for the sake of basically a marketing push. And I, and you could have done the same thing. You, you, he could have even been like, um, I need you to tell you about, I need to tell you about something called the moon, right? Because like we know what a moon is, you know what I mean? So like there's a way in which she can acknowledge the reader's presence or, you know, knowledge without being untrue to the characters. Does that make sense? Um, because I just think, I just, but I think, I mean, I mean, I hated the, I hated the sentence so much, but I almost think if she had just changed that sentence, it wouldn't have been as bad, you know, like literally if she just written it differently. Yeah. I, I honestly just think she should have just ended it two paragraphs earlier. Like what I need you to do, my Demaya, my Essen, my Cyanite is just to make it worse. I think would have been actually a really good ending. And so I think that's also part of it. I was just like, oh, but this was it, which again, it's a super dumb nitpick because it's a good book. But I, I think that would have been a much better, <laughs> well, and more powerful well, ending. Well, actually, you, you, just, you made my point probably much more succinctly than I did because that is the case of like the, the reader knows the characters are ahead of them, but it's not this sort of annoying, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a, it doesn't get out of balance, right? You're okay with the, the characters going ahead of you, but as the reader, you're not being sort of teased and told you don't know anything. Cause that's when there's a problem, you know, it's like, Oh, you don't know anything. It's like, okay, all right. This book is ending. I should know something I think anyway, but you're right. That line's also a much better line to end on. Cause it sounds better. <laughs> like, yeah, ending lines matter. Like she's trying to leave you with something that's like echoing and then the music swells and it cuts to the credits, right? And that's great. Like I think that's exactly what that moment requires. And I just, I don't know if Have You Heard of the Moon really does that, I guess, which again, I'm being a jerk because it's a really good book. That's I just, no moon. I was disappointed by the last two paragraphs. Yeah, and it's it also makes me think of Destiny. You know, that wizard came from the moon. Like it's that same, there's something silly about the moon, right? Like the moon is a, and I don't know what that is, but there's something very silly about the moon. Well, it's a ridiculous word. It's a ridiculous word even, right? Like, the the moon's not a serious word. 
<laughs> no, I guess that's right. So no, I I agree. You make it worse was the right ending line. Which is, I'm going to cross those two paragraphs out and just in future editions she should too. She can do that. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's not at all bad to go back and re-edit things no, later. No, I think not it's fine. I think she should to... not. Nev- you should never stop editing. You should you know <laughs> never, never finish books. <laughs> should always go back and change things and live in a constant sort of or or however you say that word of constantly <laughs> changing the one thing that made you famous. <clears throat> no. Uh, hey, I have a question. I think we have to talk about if you have a second. Um, so I think we've talked a lot about this book as this book, which I think is good because I think this book has kind of gotten, it, it's kind of a symbol, I think for a lot of reasons. And I think it, there's, there's a reason for that. And I'm glad we talked about the text on its own first, because I think it deserves it. I think it's a cool book. And I think it would be a shame if we only talked about it as a symbol, but I think we also need to sort of acknowledge it's sort of, symbolic nature and and the big thing is do you know a lot about the hugo controversy that this kind of it was winning all its awards like right at the tail end of do you know anything about the sad puppies and the rabid puppies uh, apparently not <laughs> okay so i don't know all the details and i'm not gonna do it and like like a lot of these big internet controversies if you say them out loud you realize how immensely stupid they really are like n- nothing makes me feel more like i've lost my mind than trying to explain to somebody what gamergate was <laughs> like it's just they look at you and you're like i know i I know but people were trying to kill each other i don't know what to tell you (laughs) so this is adjacent to gamergate stuff some of the same people are involved and they i think they sort of acknowledge they had common cause but the point is in about in like 2013 2014 2015 um a couple of groups of writers and readers um started making a big scene saying that the hugos and science fiction in general was becoming too you know sjw lefty weird politics and we hate it we want it to be back about you know, rocket ships and laser guns again. And so they, they kind of got a group of people to get together and like abuse the Hugo nomination system to get all of their stuff thrown in there and not the other stuff that might otherwise have gotten in because nobody else was disorganized. And it was kind of a review bombing, not review bombing, but like ballot stuffing kind of initiative. Right. And I don't know all the details and I can't, <laughs> right. Cause I, I don't yeah. care enough because it's not, yeah. not that important. Um, but these guys were really angry and really loud. And again, this wasn't just we like these books better. It was SJWs are destroying science fiction. It was that line of thinking. And it actually resulted in the Hugos not giving out awards for short story and novella and a few of the other ones several years in a row. I do remember. I remember that, but I, I don't think I knew all the details, actually. Cause I remember that happening. But yeah, the controversy was apparently beyond me. Because they, they had stuffed up the nomination slate so much that... And again, I don't. I haven't read any of these things, so I don't actually. I, my understanding is the ones they put in said also weren't very good. But to be clear, I haven't read them, so I don't know that, right? But regardless, they, you know, they had kind of stuffed the nomination slate such that a lot of people voted for no award rather than give it to any of these sad puppies or rabid puppies um, nominees. <laughs> I don't think it ever. It never hit novel. Also, yeah, again, I can't. I no, keep to... saying it. It gets better every time you say it. <laughs> so it. Uh, well, because there's two groups. There were the sad puppies who really just were sort of like sad about it, but also jerks. And there were the rabid puppies led oh by like Fox Day God. and some of those guys who wanted to be really, really gamer gatey because yeah. I think they had come out after. Again, it really doesn't matter because they're all just very yeah. sad people. But um, <laughs> the point is they had kind of goofed up the nomination and award giving system in the Hugos for a while. And um, so people were really wondering, like, is the Hugos, who's going to win this, right? Like, is the Hugos going to be um, these this kind of stuff where it's going to sort of be relegated to people who are trying to write Conan in space, or is it going to be what it had been becoming, which was more and more friendly to people who aren't just white dudes, but also it's, you know, sort of left-wing politics. That's not even what I want to say, because it's kind of borrowing into their false narrative. But like, you know, the sort of thing that gives Hugo to 
N.K. Jemison, right? Like, is it going to be that or is it going to be this other thing? And so for her to come out and win the Hugo for Best Novel three times in a row for this series, which is, of course, partly about, you know, oppression, and it's got a lot of, I think most of the characters are people of color. Uh, certainly many of them are. I think most of them are. I think almost everyone but Shafa is. Um, you know, there's, there's characters who are gay. There are characters who are bi. There's a character who is trans. Like, there's a lot of, you know, a, a lot of sort of representation going yeah. on here and such. Um, that would really upset this crew, right? <laughs> so the fact that she proceeded to win the Hugo three times in a row for this series, I think is also important as sort of a symbolic gesture to say, you know, screw off. And, and my understanding is they have they have pretty much lost this, this fight and the Hugos are going to do whatever they were going to do beforehand now. So my point is, I was really worried that I was going to hate this book because if I did, yeah. I was going to end up being aligned with some really bad people. So I'm happy to report <laughs> that I like this book a lot. <laughs> um <laughs> I know. That's, that's a great way to put it. Um uh you know, cuz I I didn't nothing that makes those guys happy makes me happy. But uh my point is this book has has been such an important social thing that I think it was it was good to read it as a text first. But like this book is of course about a lot of I don't want to say social justice warrior stuff cuz again that's gross. But like it's, it's a, it is about a lot of these things and uh I think it is interesting to have to have a book which is really trying to deal with questions of oppression and stuff like that as deftly as I think it does. Because I think this book doesn't ever let anybody... It, may, it doesn't make things simple at any point, right? It keeps things very complicated while still being, I think, resisting easy allegory to the real world, right? Like, I think it doesn't... I don't think his book is like, well, these people are the... You know, this is the Palestine Palestinians and these are the Israelis. Like, it's not anything like that. I think it's it, it manages to be much more complicated than it... Than it could, right? I have definitely read some stuff where you're like, "Oh, I wonder what you're thinking." <laughs> like Star Star Trek does this a lot. Well, when Star yeah. Trek tries to be relevant, it's often really bad at it. Do you remember the Vulcan space aids uh, arc in oh Enterprise? That's a really good arc. No, you're totally well. You're, well, actually, Star Trek's a good example to bring up for what I was going to say because, like you said, when it tries too hard, it's actually quite bad. But it's bad. well, and here's what's hard is like. It's bad because it becomes bad storytelling, right? So because it becomes didactic, and so I keep referring to this kind of Kingsley Amos C.S. Lewis interview. Cause partly, I just I really like the interview, and they're they're such smart literary guys who are you know are such science fiction fanboys. Um, and uh, the third person who's talking with him, Brian Aldiss, he kind of is surprised when Lewis talks about like. I thought of the idea for Perlandra, the second novel um, for of a space trilogy. He thought of it based on these like these images of like a green woman on a floating islands, and like mostly the floating islands really you know got him going with that. And all this like thought, oh, I would have guessed that you know it was about your kind of your moral you know program. And Lewis is like, no, I don't think any good art starts from that. You know, like it's not that art shouldn't be about that, but if it starts from a didactic place, it's so hard to outgrow that. Um, and so like Star, Star Trek is really strong when it's like when the, the world itself is sort of a politically accurate machine, right? So like, you know, famously, the original Star Trek series um, is about the Cold War, right? That's what everyone says, like Klingons are Russian and Federation is the US or whatever, right? Um, whether, that, whether that's true or not, what's definitely true is that the, um, the politics that are, relate to our own moment are sort of built into the ingredients of whatever Star Trek is or isn't, right? And I, I think Jemison does a really... That, 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 I'm glad you... I wanted to talk about this. I, I didn't know about... I, I knew that this book was important symbolically. I actually didn't know all the details <laughs> that you laid out. So it's even more interesting to me because um, I think that I was actually impressed with how often um, the various 
political kind of, and usually in, in this in this day and age, if like when political is used in terms of art, what people are really talking about, they're talking about power structures. They're talking about power relationships, right? Who's in power, who's wielding power, how is power experienced as almost like a a passive uh, creation of the world, you know, kind of Foucauldian light stuff, right? Um, and so I thought she did a really good job baking in a lot of the political points she may, may, may or may not want to make. For example, um, the class system, you know, right, because everyone has a use cast, right? So, like, you're a strong back or you're a leader or you're an innovator. Like, so everyone has these very clear-cut use-based um, classes, which is like a complete, you know, socialist in some ways critique of various capitalist societies. And so in some ways it's like very one-dimensional. You could argue that. But actually that that is, I think, what was a dynamic part of the book was that she never loses track of how the um, the racial breeding kind of can interpenetrate or kind of interrupt a lot of the class system stuff. So like the great empire, the Sands Empire, whatever it's called. San, what was it called? The Sanzet Empire? Uh, Sanzet? yeah. I think. So, like, that there's a very specific look, which to me, I actually had a hard time imagining what the look was, or I had a hard time keeping track of everyone's different variations, you know, of pale to very dark. And, I, you know, the big ones I got. But, like, I think that's purposeful, because I think she's definitely not making it as easy as, like, you know, she's not making a one-to-one thing of like, um, oh, classic white features are the problem in this world. But she is saying here are the identifiable characteristics that Sanzed uh, Empire has bred for. And if you don't have it, you know, even if you're of the same class, you're still treated differently within the same class. And so, I mean, that's, you know, intersectionality is what I'm basically talking about on some level um, on its initial, when it was first being built by Audrey Lord and stuff. But um but I think it was what's so I guess I'm saying all this because like like you, I'm versed in this stuff, you know? But what's what sucks is like as soon as you start pulling it apart, it actually doesn't do justice to how well she wrote it. And that's the one thing that I think um sometimes people who are trying to defend this book specifically probably, but books like this, they don't do justice to how it doesn't matter at some point, in my opinion, if she is perfectly aligned with all the right things you think she's aligned with if this is a garbage book that means she has done harm in my opinion to the things that you like it's a book it's not a speech it's not an essay it's a narrative story and so if the narrative is not effective that other stuff is it because not that it is secondary but it becomes secondary but i do think i mean yeah i do think this book like you said, if this book is held up as just a symbol, it's actually doing a disservice to the book. You know what I mean? Because it's doing so many of these beautiful political things that you may agree or disagree with well, in my opinion. But honestly, like it's also it's doing them well because it's written so well. On that note, I actually I, I think I asked this for the podcast, but you didn't finish Beloved by Toni Morrison, right? That's correct. I uh, got about a third of the way through it and was enjoying it, but it was requiring more focus than I could bring to bear at the time and got distracted. So I haven't finished. Well, it so so I'm are you okay if I spoil Beloved for you? I, I know I know I already asked you this, but you're okay. Yeah, that's so that's, this that's, so because this book really is, um, this book really does for me borrow explicitly from Beloved. So there's the scene where so she and Alabaster, uh, Sinai and Alabaster end up having a kid. And they sort of live in this polyamorous relationship with this like <laughs> this like good-natured awesome pirate. 
Yeah, no, he's it's like cool. it's like it's like it's like the best. Uh, it's sort of the best, you know, D and D character of all time. Like a a beautiful, tall sex pirate. <laughs> um who like they you know so they kind of are raising this kid together but the kid you know was born of um alabaster and cyanite's coupling um and um basically they're tracked down right so the empire and their guardians track cyanite and alabaster to this paradise island and they're gonna kill or enslave everyone especially their son their son's a very powerful origin and so he's either going to be taken back to the fulcrum and submitted to Cyanite's life, or more likely he's going to be made a node maintainer, um, which is, you know, this brutal, brutal uh, de- uh, dehumanizing experience that's like worse than death, right? And she explicitly says, you know, what's the choice here? To give my child up to slavery is not a choice, um, which is the crux of Beloved, which is about a, a woman who escapes from slavery and um you know the, the the white slavers come back to to get her and when she thinks they're going to get her she kills her newborn kid um because there's no choice it's not a choice of killing the kid there's no choice is the whole point of the text and i think it's important to bring that up because we're talking about all these social issues and one of the things i think that she does well when she and i think again to me she's borrowing explicitly from tony morrison i don't know how she couldn't be um but of course, the, what she brings up is like, here's the horrible things that I've been made to do by the horrible system, but also I have to live with the horrible things that I have done, which I think we get that that's part of the point of the book, because Alabaster says at the end, he'll never forgive her. He gets it, but he'll never forgive her for killing their son. Um so I don't know. I just I, I don't know what your read was on that. If you thought that was effective, because honestly, like when she had to kill their son, I, I mean, even though I knew it was coming, and even though I was like, this is a beloved ripoff, it. And honestly, I mean, I, I have an 18 month old, so I'm probably not like in a very <laughs> objective place right now. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but like it it really affected me. I thought it was really powerful, but also powerful partly because if this is a book about politics and power structures, you know, here's the most complicated situation that these things make you do such horrible things, but you still have to live with yourself. Like there's still this moral element, even when it's not, you know, even when the chain of, you know, um, of causation goes back beyond you. I thought that was an effective moment. I thought, you know, and she does it, the guardian who's caught her is Shafa, right? Is the guy who saved her in the first place. And so she makes this decision in front of him. Um, and it also makes sense for why she's being, you know, she's been t- turning to like a roaring rampage of revenge character in, in the present because she had explicitly gotten away and hidden and raised her two other children without, as far as she knew, ever, except with one exception, telling anyone that she was an origin. Her husband didn't know it. She thought it was fine. She thought he was free. I mean, that's the that's a sentence she says early. And then they killed the kid. So she's had, she now has two dead children, possibly a third. And so it really makes a lot of sense for why she's even even more angry. I mean, obviously having a someone kill your child would make you, I think, pretty angry on its own, right? But there, it even makes more sense as a as a through line for why she is she is just she's not that upset that she blew up part of the. No, nope, doesn't you know care. I mean? Like because they, they all they all kind of did it to her, you know. <laughs> and I think it I think it was I think it was an effective moment. I think it was it was it was pretty powerful. I uh, yeah I. Uh, I won't say I liked it. I guess the right word. But. <laughs> well, and I, I think I mean I, I think I liked it because honestly, I think where this book was weak sometimes is that I mean, 
she and uh she and alabaster are like they like murder people <laughs> you know what i mean like she at least i mean she joins these pirates for like this fun-loving paradise and that was the one place where the book didn't do too much investigating um like she like has to kill people to save her family and so it tries to complicate it but like they sort of do just straight up rob and murder some people right like she's just a highwayman essentially she's an actual pirate and there was a way in which a few times I felt like, or like she killed the whole city and it talks about, you know, how bad she feels about killing a whole city. But like, I think the city was like a hundred thousand people. I mean, that's genocide, right? Like that's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that the causality on that's supposed to be a little more complicated because the obelisk falling out of the sky is what like, and blowing up like, and I don't think she thought that's what she was doing. So it's, it's not quite like some of the other stuff, but it's definitely, yeah. I mean, she is the proximate cause for, you know, a hundred thousand some odd dead people. And I'm, I'm not quite clear. She really ever quite reckoned with that. <laughs> well, no, and, and, and you're right. She, it wasn't, it wasn't like she pushed a button and fired a nuke. It, totally. You're right. The causation is supposed to be wobbly. Um, and of course the, 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 ex, the extremes to which they're trying to retreat from the world speaks to probably how difficult it is to be in the world. And so I, I think it does it well overall. There was just, there was a few points where it was like, I mean, it was the whole city, <laughs> you know, like it was everything. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, yeah. So, but, but over, but, but that's why I like the moment with her son, because I feel like, um, like just no one was let off the hook. You know what I mean? Like, and that, and that's why I think it's important that Alabaster says he won't forgive her, because there's there's no easy solution, right? There was she didn't have a choice. The choice between slavery and dying is not, not a choice, right? That's not an actual choice. And yet you still have to live with what your life has been, you know? Which I think is powerful. I think it's a powerful statement. But so yeah, so yeah, so sorry, we probably went to, you know, not too long, but um on that stuff. I probably went too long on some of that stuff. Um I do think anyone who doesn't read this book because it like it has certain you know, stuff baked into it. It's just the laziest way to be a reader. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's the laziest way to be in the world. Beyond being, like, horrible and bad as a racist stance. Like, the idea that you won't read stuff because it's, I don't know, it's just, it's like a, it's like a child's uh, logic, isn't it? It's just a child's logic. I, yeah, I mean, read wherever you want, but don't, yeah. I If you can't read stuff that's got, I don't know. I have no patience for such folks, so I probably won't say anything because I, I can't say anything nice. Or even... <laughs> I'm already like holding <laughs> myself back. Um, so yeah. So what else do you want to talk about, man? Do you have anything else you wanted to, to bring up about the book or about stuff in general? I don't think I had any other major stuff. I think I just had a couple of silly sort of fan cast stuff to ask, right? Which is like, um, do you think this is actually Earth? It's called the Broken Earth, and they say Earth several times, but it's not clear if this is actually like Terra, right? Like, do you think, this is what I was wondering, is this going to turn out, because a lot of dead civilizations we hear about, right? There's a lot of dead civs and they've lost a lot of their history. And so it would be possible for this to turn out to actually be Earth after some kind of environmental or nuclear catastrophe, or it could be something else entirely. So what do you think? I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, I think it's the obvious answer, which is what you, you said. I, I, so there's, there's a paragraph, it's only one paragraph where she talks about um, the first season happening because, um, the sieve at the time dug too deep and took the blood of the earth. Like, it seems like that's fracking, right? Like, um, and so it seems to me like, yeah, I definitely think it's, it's, it's supposed to be this earth far, far in the future after, you know, you know, environmental climate disaster has already occurred. Um, which by the way, like I, I didn't, I speaking of just like fan stuff. I love, 
lost world dead civilization stuff <laughs> i don't know i don't know what it is about like because like uh asimov has this asimov has this story about nightfall you know where it's like like there are two suns rotating one planet so it's never nighttime except for like once every hundreds of years or whatever and um as the scientists learn that like this is going to happen that there's going to be no light for a certain time they're like We've also discovered nine previous civilizations that have all destroyed themselves. <laughs> and it's like, oh my god, <laughs> are we all living on the bones? It's like, it's the Battlestar Galactica thing, right? Like, are we all just repeating the cycle? I don't know why. I don't know why I love it so much. Like, it's just purely a joy thing. Well, it, it made me think a lot of, um, there's a role-playing system and a world called Numenera, I think is how it's said. Um, N-U-M-E-N-E-R-A, Numenera, maybe. I'm not actually sure how it's said. My friend Jared is maybe very happy because he, uh, anyway, uh, it's a cool, it's a cool system for other reasons, but also the world they call it, I think it's the ninth world because there've been eight previous civilizations that have all been destroyed over the years and they've left just their incredibly powerful technology everywhere. And so there are people who are basically mages, but what they actually are is they figured out how to talk to the ubiquitous nanomachines and making them do the things they want. And so they are functionally not, not unlike mages who can like throw fire or whatever. Uh, but it's not actually magic. It's just that they they basically hacking because there's there's nanomachines permeating like every square inch of the world, and they figured out how to make them do what they want, and that's just a really fun idea. And uh, so all the dead Civ stuff here made me think about Numenera a bit. Well, it's like uh, I never got into you know, Shannara uh, series by Terry Brooks, but um, I think the premise of that I really I really love the idea that it's like the fantasy world is post apocalyptic. You know what I mean? Like that actually, you know, like I think that's smart. I don't know if you've read the, that series at all. Um, I haven't. I've heard they're terrible. So yeah, I, I didn't. Again, <laughs> didn't didn't go far. I don't even think I finished the first book. But um, yeah, I think the premise of that is it's you know I like I I, I like that stuff. I, I like the idea of because I, I mean I, I like it, but also it, it is reality. It's never as fun as the fiction. But like, um, you know, a, a huge landmass that basically used to connect England to you know the mainland of Europe, but a certain section of it is called Doggerland. Have you heard of this? Um, uh, no. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it used to, you know, it was, you know, the seas rose at some point, of course, way back in the way back machine. And there's a, there's a book out that I, I haven't picked up yet that I would like to at some point. I can't remember who it's by, but you know, it's so, like, there's, there's all, there's all this stuff literally buried on, you know, the seafloor, um, of like old, mostly, you know, nomadic hunter gather. There's not a lot of like lost temples per se. Right. But like, um, there's these whole civilizations whose lands aren't even above water anymore, um, which I love. I love that stuff. I, I mean, I you know, like the Lost Library of Alexandria, whatever, right? It's always fascinating. I mean, Egypt itself is sort of an example of just these various hugely, you know, I mean, advanced civilizations that were at such odds with, I don't know, uh, the worlds that, you know, we're familiar with, I guess. Yeah, anyway, I just love that genre. <laughs> yep, no, I like it. I'll also say, um, in terms of things that were cool, the obelisks are very cool. I like that they're these huge floating crystal things that just kind of hang out in the sky, and no one knows what they are or what they do, and they're just around. And uh, they're clearly from some previous civilization, and they move around sometimes, and everyone just kind of... Nobody flies, so it doesn't matter. It's not like there's airplanes. So it's like, oh, there's an obelisk over there. And at one of the points, one of the characters realizes that they actually... There are some people that the obelisks seem to follow around. <laughs> We haven't really figured out right. what that means or what it's about, but that's just, that's super cool. Like just like this huge, 
massive stories tall floating crystal that is just sort of lazily making its way across the country on an inscrutable mission following some person around that's very much my jam <laughs> that's very much my sort of thing. i um i like <laughs> i actually like the stone eaters so far um i mean yeah, yeah there's, a, cool. there's definitely a cheesy route you could go with them but um you know when she pulls the obelisk over the city she destroys she discovers there's an earth eater inside it you know um and i thought that was well done it was you know I was kind of throw away more than it maybe should have been, but I, yeah, it was, I think, I mean, the, the world building stuff, that's what's so funny is I think it's why the book is deserving of the praise it's got is that it's, it's sort of really well structured. It's written with a lot of passion and intensity, which I like. Um, but she doesn't like neglect the world building, right? Like, it's not like it's a, uh, it's not like this stuff is just sort of, you know, there's some haphazard moments, but like overall it's a really well-defined world. Um, which I think is just the basic prerequisite for, you know, a lot of, for most good science fiction fantasy, right? You have to have an interesting world. And she does have one for a lot of reasons. So yeah, I don't think I have much else I had to say about this book off the top of my head. I'm excited for going forward. I'll be curious to see what she does, Um, you know. So that's that's the only thing I would ask. What do you think is going to come next? Like, what do you think is the narrative just, um, like, what's the narrative from here? Is it just, we try and find the moon? (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, we got to do something with the moon, apparently, <laughs> which I'm going to just assume will be more yeah. interesting in the moment. Uh, I don't know. The next book is called The Obelisk Gate. So, I mean, one must assume the obelisks are important. And that's very cl- I mean, they've they've been very clear that whatever magical nonsense is involved with the obelisks is what we're dealing with next. Um, so, I don't know. I, I really haven't. I don't think I've even read the back of the book for the next one because I really wanted to go into this one as blind as I could. So, um, I don't know. I'll be curious to see if we have any other point of view characters or if it is just uh, just Essen. As a, you know, I'll be curious to see what she does sort of formally in that regard. Because you're right, that was a lot of what made this book really. Well, cool. and who would you like to see a different? Like, is there anyone you we've already met that you'd like to see their point of view? I don't. Not who's not dead, right? Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> it would be interesting for some of the, you know, for like the sex pirate, for instance. And that sounds like a joke, but it actually would have been kind of interesting to see what he was gonna because he's he's also an origin, but he's untrained and complete. You know, he learned enough to not accidentally wreck things, but he doesn't. It would have been kind of interesting to see what somebody like that was doing uh i don't think it was wrong to kill him i don't mean that i just some some sort of figure like that who's not very well versed would have been kind of fun but uh i think tonky is like an obvious candidate um because yeah she has a whole obvious like adventure that we're seeing sort of the middle of like like you know like some stuff is summarized about what has happened in her life but she clearly has gone through her own and, and you know some of it's already detailed so maybe there's no point in it but i could see that being you know, if we, especially if we go back in time at all, right? Because I, I, part of me still thinks, part of me thinks as much as we're going to advance into the future, I, I don't, like, there's, I don't know that she's done with some of the previous timelines. Like, I'm not sure we'll see, like, Demaya or Cyanide again, but it feels like some of the stuff pre-giant Earthshake um, from Alabaster, some of that is still in play, it feels like, for me. But, but I'm, yeah, we'll see. I'm with you. I'm not going to read the back of the book even when I do pick it up. I mean, I've really enjoyed going into – I mean, I like going into books blind anyway. Like, I never read introductions. I never read prefaces until I'm done. Um, but, yeah, I definitely have enjoyed going into this not knowing a lot besides highly acclaimed. Um, it's been fun. It's really, really, really – I mean, this, this podcast is not built for recommendations. Um, but I definitely think this is a – one of the more enjoyable, like, you know, page-turner reads I've had in a while, to be honest. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's a good book. All right, man. Well, if nothing else, I guess I guess we'll hang it up, huh? No, I think that's pretty much it. So we're reading the second book in this trilogy, The Obelisk Gate, sometime in the middle of next month. And then after that, The Stone Sky. So there'll be a 
uh, you know, podcast next month and the one after. We're also going to do uh, a full-length big read for the month after that, but we haven't decided what it is yet, so just, uh, you know, stay tuned, uh, and we'll let you know. Uh, beyond that, you know, always feel free to, to tell us how we, you know, if, if you have any... Uh, criticism or comments or whatever let us know tweet you bill can, yeah uh, respond tweet, to tweet, the tweet, you can tweet well me you can tweet the, you, <laughs> you can tweet the big readcast account itself uh you can comment on facebook you can leave reviews on itunes if you want currently we have a we're zero out of zero on reviews or or you know, we have either we have either 100 positive rate or a zero percent positive rate on reviews depending on how you want to think about it so i don't think either of us are trying to take over the world with this podcast but if you like it and wanted to leave a review you could do that and that would make more people listen to us which i think would be good i guess i'm not sure I'm always worried that I'm going to say something incredibly silly because I don't really know what I'm this doing. This is how it. This, no, so maybe maybe nobody you know, listening this, to it is better. This is sometimes it, it's it, it doesn't like you know neither of us like you know you have a real career as a lawyer and I I'm a librarian basically and um so like it's not it's not like we're like currently writers I mean you've written stuff and I've written stuff but like you know that's not our our main gig but sometimes it does feel like. This 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 is how I this is how I go down in the future. <laughs> like if I if I if I ever make it on even like a minuscule a minuscule scale, someone's gonna listen to these and be like, this son of a son of a gun. <laughs> this guy went after Stephen King. <laughs> he thinks he's better than Stephen King or whatever. And it won't be that. It'll be some faux pas that I didn't even know I said, but. It's recorded for all time. No, it's going to some, somehow, even though he's a thousand years old, it'll be 10 years from now, and I'll think I've made it with a fantasy novel that I've written, only it turns out that Michael Moorcock yes. is somehow between me and getting there. Yes. And he'll be like, I remember what you said about me, and I'll be like, dang it. <laughs> I do. So I, that reminds me of this. Uh, you remember Waterworld, obviously? Um, from he, So there's a huge water park here in Cardo, for those of you who aren't Bill, called Waterworld, and I was a lifeguard there. And my last, what I thought was my last summer, I just hated the place so much. And you're supposed to leave like anonymous, um, like like anonymous like feedback on the different leads, uh, the lead guards. And I just ripped one guy and I signed my name. <laughs> and then the, <laughs> and then the next year I like I needed a job. <laughs> and the first day of training, he came up to me. And he's like, I remember you, man. I remember you. And you're not getting any good gigs. And I was like, oh. Uh, Words have consequences. <laughs> like being like a cool, angry young person has consequences. But whatever, that was totally right. He was horrible. Anyway, that's your Michael Moorcock. He's your lead guard. <laughs> yep, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be. I mean, he's going to be a thousand years old, and he's going to remember my podcast, and that's going to be it. We'll be like, well, uh, nevertheless, you wrote some bad stories, Michael. So, you know, I'm right. At least I didn't write that bad poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. So. All right, man. Well, good as always chatting. Um, Hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Looking forward to it. All right. Bye. Bye.
Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast. You can find both of them on SoundCloud if you'd like to hear more of their music. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting service. And, uh, you know, we'll see you next time.